Hello, and welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with John Cornett and Dr. Hunter Martindale of the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Program at Texas State University. John is one of the founding members of the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Program, known as ALERT, and works for Texas State University as the Assistant Director for ALERT. John served 21 years as a municipal police officer in Texas, retiring in 2016. He served nearly 18 of those years on a multi-agency SWAT team as a point man, assistant team leader, team leader, and then sniper. John has been awarded the Law Enforcement Medal of Honor, the Medal of Valor, two life-saving medals, Police Commendation Medal, Distinguished Service Medal, Chief's Recognition Award, and the Texas Tactical Police Officers Association's Excellence Award. John studied criminal justice at Southwest Texas State University and is a U.S. Army Active Light Infantry veteran. Dr. Hunter Martindale currently serves as the Director of Research for the ALERT program at Texas State University. Within this role, Hunter is responsible for the development and implementation of ALERT's research agenda. His research interests include active shooter attack events, law enforcement decision-making, and the impact of stress on law enforcement performance. Dr. Martindale and John, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Wow. It seems like uh, we don't go through many days without seeing new active shooter threats or incidents around the country. So I can only imagine how busy your alert center is. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what exactly it is that you do? So the program started after Columbine incident in 1999. Uh, Like everybody else, we we looked internally to see what we could do better as far as training, resources, leadership, equipment, all the above. So we developed some curriculum. We started delivering that locally. And as we started to receive grant money at the state and federal level, um, obviously 9-11 happened. And that kind of was like an atropine injection for a lot of funding for anti-terrorism. So um, kind of flash forward to active shooter response. Now what we term active attack response. Being part of a university uh, is very rare. So there's a lot of collaboration between the sheriff's office, the, the police department, um, other professional organizations, the Texas State University. We have a research component that allows us to look at these incidents and kind of dissect them and analyze them for what they really are and not so much a perceived, well, I think this will probably happen. I think that'll probably happen but we actually look at what is happening. And uh, Dr. Martindale will speak more about the research and some of the data that comes out of it. But basically, you know, we take that research and we try to make the best active attack training across the country. 
we have a lot of people that go out and teach for us. Uh, we have a lot of partnerships and friendships with people across the country. So from all of that, we derive a lot of information on incidents that have occurred, um, our own personal experiences with things. We identify gaps in training uh, initially with law enforcement response, but then we started identifying, you know, civilian response needs to be there. What would they do before we get there? When we get there? How can they actually help us when we get there? Because we're going to be outnumbered and overwhelmed in these some of them are, you know, true mass casualty incidents. Uh, and then over time, we started to look at fire department and EMS. And we were teaching cops medicine, but we also needed to teach some tactics to the fire and EMS people so that they could join us inside uh, quicker so they could render better aid. And we could get people to definitive care a lot quicker when we shorten that chain of response. Um, along with that, we started identifying incident command as one of those shortages that we needed to um, address with good training. So even though these incidents are relatively low frequency, they're incredibly high intensity, uh, high intensity events. We also have a conference because the grant money that we get from Department of Justice is very specific on who we can directly touch with the training. And, you know, it only goes so much with uh, the amount that we're awarded. Uh, we have a conference each year that is self-funded, and that allows us to expand the tent, if you will, and bring in more professions and more stakeholders in the community so that we can better integrate as we prepare, respond, recover, and bounce back from these events. Yeah, that's an amazing charter, John. Uh, Dr. Martindale, research-wise, what trends are you seeing with active shooters, and are we seeing an uptick? Or is social media just constantly pushing these to our forefront? So for the uh, the data that we collect, we I guess I can first talk about where we get it from and how it how it's put together. Uh, we're part of the FBI Active Shooter Working Group, so we we assist that working group in helping identify events. And so today I'll talk about the 2000 to 2019 data. And at Alert, what we do, and, and John talked about a little bit, is we are we have pivoted over to active attacks. So we know there's active shooters out there. Everybody knows kind of what that is. But what we're looking at is also events that have the same type of intensity that maybe aren't carried out with a firearm. So we've expanded the active shooter uh, to active attack, and that will include um, active um, knife attacks or people that are using vehicles as a weapon, and they're, they're trying to inflict as much harm as possible with those alternative um, measures. And so in the... FBI official data, I think there's 305 events from 2000-2019. With our expanded look going to active attacks, we're at 347 events from 2000-2019. And that's mostly um, knife attacks that that are included in that that bumped it up. There's a few vehicle attacks. So as far as trends go, everybody, I'm sure, has seen uh, different accounts of, of the rapid increase of events. And when you break it down by chunks, if you break it into into quarters, uh, you do see an increase. Uh, it's it's hard to say why there's an increase. There's no one pivot point that could say this is what caused this increase. It could be an artifact of the the way data is gathered. We didn't start collecting these data until around 2010, 2011, earlier part of of the period around the early 2000s. Maybe they weren't being uh, talked about as much in the media, so it's harder for us to retroactively find those events. 
Whereas now it's more in the forefront. So every even small event is going to get more media attention and that allows us to find them better. So it could just be an artifact of we just can't find them through the searches. It appears they do seem to be increasing, that that's not purely an artifact of the data, um, but it's really hard to say one way or the other. Yeah, that's fascinating, Hunter. And to delineate the difference between active shooter versus active attack, is that just an expanded definition from either the alert center or the FBI or in, in the academic realm? It's, yeah, it's an expanded definition, and it's from the alert center. We're solely focused on those first responders and how to improve their response. And we don't imagine, and, and I think most anybody that's listening would imagine, that if, if a call goes out for somebody actively um, engaging in harm and they find out it's not a gun, they're going to slow down and turn their signal, their lights off and, and slow down because somebody's running around with a, you know, a knife and they're doing the attack. So we wanted to gather as much data as we can to make sure that if there are trends or if there are differences that we see in these events, that we're able to get that data to the to the first responders. And so we just expanded it to include any weapon. Um, currently, we've only found knives and, and vehicles to fit within that definition. Uh, there was a case in, in Canada several years ago where somebody was using a crossbow and they were running around with a crossbow attacking people. If that happened in the United States, that would have been included in our in our database because that, that individual was actively engaged in trying to kill as many people as possible with that weapon. Uh, we just haven't seen an active crossbow attack yet. So it's mostly limited to, to knives and vehicles at this point and the firearms. Is there anybody doing this kind of research internationally? It's a very good question, actually. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody doing it to the level that we do it. Oh, Johnny, if you know anybody. Yeah, in, in my travels, I haven't heard of anybody else. Um, everyone seems to be very enthralled with our our approach. And if they are, we don't we don't hear about it as much uh, because we're partnered with the FBI and our research and their research kind of kind of working together to sift through all the incidents that happen nationally and qualify them very carefully to fit within the, you know, the topical situation that we're talking about. I don't know of anybody else that does it like we do. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, being located in Austin, Texas, I've had the privilege uh, not only to visit your facility, but uh, to watch some of the training and to visit your conference. So I, I know that uh, what you do is so important in this space. Now, I guess the elephant in the room is everybody starts to stair-step their way back into the workplace. We have a tremendous amount of security professionals that listen to our podcast. And I know we're reading tea leaves here, but being a, an old protective intelligence analyst and, and agent at heart, with that uptick in data, what appears to be, one would think that that is somewhat troubling. So do you anticipate more attacks in our post-pandemic world? And if so, any speculation as to why? You know, I'll take a stab at it. My my experience has just been in, you know, two and a half decades of law enforcement and responding to to incidents and also studying human behavior and studying trends. And I listen to a lot of different podcasts. I listen to a lot of different professions speak from their different perspectives or angles on the issues that confront us as a culture today. And the one recurring theme that I, I just keep coming back to is 
the mental health picture right now in this country is pretty bad. Uh, we have just now starting to come out of something that we've never really experienced, or at least in, in this time period, um, with the seclusion, the isolation, the um, you know the pandemic, the, the everything, the aggregate of all the stressors in the past fifteen months, and as people start to mingle more, there's going to be a logical increase in the crime that we see, um, compounded with whatever the mental health picture looks like to the mental health professionals out there. So that's kind of a long, fluffy way of saying my personal opinion is, yes, I think we're probably primed for an increase in these type of events. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Ontech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontech Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.co slash center. That's ontech.co slash center. On the tactical front, what changes have you seen as a result of this? And how should the private sector prepare their workforce or train for active attack response? Well, with the tactics, you know, we're constantly researching and evaluating and assessing what's effective, what's not in the very finite amount of time that we have to spend with the responders. Uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, we don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of time. There's so much that it's competing for time and money. Uh, in which training exists, the training spectrum exists, and we're just one small sliver of it. And I said it earlier, it's relatively low frequency, yet it's high intensity when it does occur. It, it's very, very impactful. So it's really hard to convince people that they need to stay hyper vigilant and ready for something that when you look in the grand scheme of things, it does not happen very often. So we're looking at how do we maximize the minimal time that we have to get the maximum return on investment. Tactics, okay, but we're starting to look more at concepts and principles, and we have for decades. What are the big picture things that need to be accomplished here? And as the person standing there sizing up the field that they're standing on, on the day, and what factors they're actually dealing with on the day, they will probably have to come up with some tactics or some techniques to, to handle that or to manage that. But what are the overriding goals? Stop the active killing. So that sounds pretty broad, and it is kind of purposefully. We've been teaching cops for years. You know, you get the call, you show up, you run in, you do this, stop it. Now we're starting to find out that um, that's not that simple. And no matter how good we become at it, the civilian response was kind of born out of the we know that we can't be there in the first few minutes. And when seconds count, we're minutes away. What do people on scene need to do for themselves? So we started teaching them what we would do if we were there. 
you know, what they can and should do and giving them some options because obviously not everyone's in the same shoes when this thing kicks off. The closer you are to it, uh, the less options you have that I give you, you know, um, the farther away you are, the more options that I present to you, you may be able to, uh, to explore. Proximity equals opportunity in the way of choosing your options. So stopping the killing looks a lot of different ways. You know, for civilian response, we start with get away from it. You know, if you're not a target of opportunity, then you're not going to be a target that we have to worry about when we show up, somebody that was uh, seriously injured or killed. If you can't get away, then you keep them away from you. You close and lock and barricade doors. You try to turn lights out. You try to make it look like you're not there. It's just a game of psychology, cat and mouse. Where's Waldo with the gun that's going on inside this building? And then be prepared to have to use force to defend yourself. And everyone has that legal right. It's the ability to use force that is something that people need to work on. Uh, Do you have the mental, emotional, physical, tactical capacity to end somebody else's life, given that they are trying to end yours or somebody, you know, other people around you? So. All those would be the tactical things, the, the, you know, what people can do, what officers are going to try to do when we show up. We're going to try to distract them from other people and focus the attention on us with the body armor, the weapon, the training, the, uh, the moral and ethical commitment and contract with our community to act on their behalf. We're going to hopefully use our equipment to the best of its ability to stop the, the active killer if they don't stop it themselves. Some of the biggest things that are merging trends are the medicine. Okay, so people have been seriously injured already. Before the call goes out, before we get the call, before we show up on scene, before we stop the active killer, injuries have occurred. So now getting stop the bleed training in the hands of civilians is critically important. It's nice to know how to get away, keep them away, take them out if you have to, but it's also no, nice to know how to treat people that have been injured and maybe yourself. And what we found is a lot of the stuff that we're teaching people in within the context of active attack response, it carries over into other aspects of our lives. Uh, We've taught people tourniquet drills that have showed up on traffic accidents and applied tourniquets and saved lives. Uh, We've taught people situational awareness that came into play when they were inside of a building that caught on fire. So there's a lot of stuff that translates well across the board in other types of disasters. But as far as what people need to know, it really starts with just awareness, being aware that this is an issue and how to look for indicators for situations that are about to turn south and then know how to calculate quickly, which is very difficult to do. That's why there's a lot of training. Um, What do I do about it? Where do I go? What are my options? Do I have any options? I'm a big fan of Stop the Bleed. I, I have kits uh, in my car, John, and in my uh, my bag that's always with me. And I think that training is uh, phenomenal. So I, uh, I appreciate that shout out for that organization. They do wonderful work. When you start looking at these as you've examined them at the Alert Center in San Marcos, how long do attacks usually last? Yeah, so we... Uh... We do collect those data, and I'm going to caveat it before we get too far into it, because those are the hardest data to collect on these events. Uh, We only pull in those data if we have some sort of verified source. So an after-action report, uh, the PIO speaking about the event after it's over, or some sort of law enforcement um, 
uh, connection that can tell us some of these data. We tend not to pull these data off of media accounts because it's sometimes it's it's guessing uh, what it is. So we only have duration data on about a quarter of the events that we consider to be good solid data. So just a caveat that there's a lot of missing data in this, but from what we do have, this is what I, I can I can tell you about. Uh, so the median duration being the the middle uh, amount is is six minutes, and we we use the median instead of a mean, which would be just a normal average, uh, because some of these events are really long. So if there's a mobile attacker and say he's driving around multiple locations, that event could be an hour long, hour and a half long. So if we use a pure average, you can start to shift the, the numbers up. And so we use a median, which cuts off the outlier events. So median uh, duration is six minutes. Uh, and we know based off those same data, that the median response time is, is approximately three minutes for all law enforcement to get there. Now, there are some that are there faster than that, and there are some that take a little longer. So right in the middle, it's hidden, hidden three minutes. So these are really fast events. And when we look at the, the resolutions, so how they actually end, it falls in line with what you would expect with those two numbers. Half of these events end before law enforcement arrive, and that goes back to what John was talking about with the civilian response and, and what you can do really does make a difference and half end after law enforcement arrive. And, and a lot of the times, the majority of those times, the law enforcement are directly intervening with the attacker to stop them. Not a lot of time. No, it's fast. Yeah. It's for the people there. It's probably feels like an eternity, but it's, it's quick. Well, and that's the reason why we really push for a company to create a culture of preparedness, not scared, not, you know, people walking on eggshells, but just awareness and preparedness. And this is something that is not very easy to do. Uh, it defies the survival instinct that is innate in every single human being to be able to try to see and hear and think and formulate and execute clearly and concisely under that much stress and that impending mortality is confronting you is an incredibly difficult, it's one of the most difficult things for any human being to ever do. And so this is why it warrants more than just an initial conversation. It warrants more than just a PowerPoint presentation. And this is why we do the reality-based training that we do for cops and for military is you're about to go into something that no one wants to really look at or have to deal with, but it's a reality. And if you're going to be the one that has to deal with it, you're going to have to know what you're up against and you're going to have to perform under those conditions. And as instructors, we're going to coach you through how to get through those conditions and do the things you need to do correctly, legally, because those standards still do apply. But again, what is off the table? What is unreasonable? What is over the top when you're talking about somebody trying to kill you or somebody around you? And so we got to have these conversations and then we have to start taking actual steps towards preparation and performance enhancement. John or Hunter, I don't know who wants to tackle this one, but uh, love to know what your thoughts are. What are the biggest changes you expect to see in the physical security space in the next two to three years? You know, I think physical security, I think you're going to start seeing more of these type of attacks being thought about in the planning or the design of buildings. Uh, you're also going to start to see more products come to market that will harden buildings in areas where you see these attacks 
usually uh, begin to occur. You know, at the front station or front lobby areas or the uh, ingress, egress points, windows. You know, we've seen a lot of attacks where if you harden up the doors or the locking systems are working, then they just start going, you know, breaking glass, shooting through glass, and they walk through it. So you're starting to see products come to market. Uh, there's a company now that makes a solution and a film that goes over the window that up armors the glass. You see better detection systems being built into buildings. All this hardware is great, but the software, the people that are inside these buildings, that's where I think the the future lies. I think that's where the biggest room for improvement because the hardware is just going to detect something or prevent something that is occurring. People hear and see things before it happens. People hear and see things as they happen, and they may have to trigger some of the hardware into into action. And you still have to invest in human capital. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you would like to say? I I can't think of anything. I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. And uh, again, no matter what you do for a living, this is something that translates very well across all professions, all socioeconomic statuses. I mean, it's something that we should all be involved in. It's a all hands, all stakeholders on deck community response. And so whether you're actively participating in this or passively by way of paying taxes or supporting, you know, policies or training agendas or whatever by way of your vote or by way of your support for initiatives that the community brings up, you've got to be involved. You have to be involved. And if we're talking about a a corporate culture, this is something that sometimes the top doesn't push down. People at the bottom have to push up or they have to remember it when they get to the top, that this is something that we feel we haven't done enough of. So now I'm going to start pushing to make this more the mainstay of our culture. It's a safety and awareness, a preparation. And it's not just for workplace, the training that you give people for a potential workplace violence situation, they can take with them when they go to the movies, they can take when they go to the mall, when they go to a shopping center with their, with their family, to church. So this is a really good thing to do for your people, regardless of what or where they may end up using it. I could just one final thought from the data side of it, and John talked about it earlier, but the data show that what you do matters, right? So we have 15, 16% of these events that are ended because civilians interdicted. They were able to physically subdue the attacker. Uh, there's been a few events where there was an armed civilian that was able to, to use a firearm effectively. But most of the the civilian stops are them physically stopping that attacker. They're tackling them. They're ganging up on them. They're using whatever they have to to stop them. And so they, and there's no way to know. There's no way to know how many people were saved doing doing those interdictions. But clearly, they stopped somebody that was actively trying to kill people. So it makes a big difference. And from the law enforcement side of it, this is the most dangerous call an officer will ever show up to if it's still ongoing. So I told you half the events were still ongoing um, when law enforcement arrived. That ends up being 177 events. And of those, 53 of the events resulted in officers being shot. So there was 97 total officers shot throughout all those events. And so you're looking at essentially a third of an, of an active event when you show up that officers are getting shot. And they're they're interdicting over a third of the events, which kind of correlates with what it is. So it's a... It's an event where civilians can make a big difference, but for the law enforcement audience, when you show up, 
and it's active. It's a dangerous call and you're saving lives doing it. So it's, that's what the data really speaks to for me on, on what these, these, how these events unfold and the impact of both civilians and law enforcement on being able to stop them. John Cornett and Dr. Hunter Martindale, thank you so much for being on the OnTick Protective Intelligence Podcast and thank you for what you do. Appreciate it. Thank Pleasure. you for having us. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.